Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter audio version. This is newsletter volume 11, issue number 24, and this week we're going to be discussing the herpes virus. I hope that everyone had a great week last week and that the information provided last week around coronavirus is helping you live a more normal and happy life as we continue to live as authentically as we can within the framework of how our society is laid out. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare provider and in no way is to be used to uh, treat a health issue, diagnose a health issue, or substitute for your provider's care. Let's get caught up on some of the polls from a few weeks ago. There was two poll questions asked. One was, do you listen to podcasts? And the answer was a resounding 86%. I was a little surprised how high that number was. And then the second answer to a second question was, will you listen to a one-hour podcast as I have planned? And that was the same, 86.5% answered yes, they would. Based on these numbers, I'm quite excited to present information to you in a different format, specifically with an interview of an expert and then interviewing parents and children regarding specific disease processes and then doing wrap-ups. So attempting to do four podcasts over a four-week cycle with information laid out in different ways uh, that is consumable and palatable to you, the listener, in hopes that that information will help you navigate whatever situation you're working through. Now on to the newsletter. So this week, I was asked to look at herpes infections of the oral region, and so I did a newsletter on that exact topic. So here goes. Herpes labialis is a common recurrent irritation for many children and parents alike. The Red Book, the Bible of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, is the best resource for understanding herpes viral infections. There are eight primary herpes viruses that infect humans, including herpes simplex 1, otherwise known as HSV1, herpes simplex 2, otherwise known as HSV2, varicella zoster virus, which we all call chickenpox, Epstein-Barr virus, which we all call mono or infectious mono, cytomegalovirus, human herpes virus 6, which we all call roseola or infantum subitum, or human herpes virus number seven, which is very similar to number six, and Kaposi's sarcoma herpes virus. They are all made of a double-stranded DNA viral genome and have a common and unique feature to herpes biology. They have, an inc- they have a high incidence of asymptomatic transmission coupled to the ability to establish a latency phase, which can be reactivated to cause recurrent or new episodes of disease during periods of physical or mental stress. For the purpose of this piece, we're going to focus primarily on HSV1 and 2, which causes primarily the labialis type, what we see of as very annoying skin infections. HSV1 and HSV2 infections are primarily called herpes labialis and herpes genitalis and are characterized by vesicular ulcers around the mouth, face, and genital regions. These two viruses are deadly for newborns up to a month of age and anyone who is immunocompromised. We're going to only focus on the milder version for this newsletter. The vesicles will look like a little blister that gradually will dry out into crusted lesions and can last for one to two weeks during primary infections and then recurrences. Lesions can tingle or burn during and before their appearance. They contain high amounts of virus promoting the immune system to send monocytes, a type of white blood cell, and other types of immune cells to the area to attack. 
after a primary, i.e. herpes simplex virus naive infection occurs, the viral infection goes dormant in the local nerve ganglion where the immune system has a very difficult time clearing it. This is the key piece of this, why we always see the virus return in the same location, is this latency phase where it hides in this nerve root ganglion. And when it comes back to life, it tends to show up in the exact same location where it's hiding. During this latency phase, quote, unquote, it is important to note that these persons will nevertheless shed infectious viral particles into their mucous membranes, which could infect other individuals. On the other hand, up to one-third of persons that have had clinical symptoms during primary infection show frequent reactivations, which occur on average six times a year. That was from Alvarez et al. 2020. Upon reactivation, the virus travels from the nerve to the local skin cells where they replicate, inducing a reactivation as seen via new skin lesions near the nerve dormancy site. This is the time for a preventative event to occur. Therapy has been marginally useful at best for most patients. Antivirals like valacyclovir and acyclovir reduce the length of time of vesicle activity or shedding by a day or so. Overall, therapy seems unnecessary for minor herpes labialis unless a day or so of less lesion time has value to you. The antivirals, on the other hand, are very useful for someone that has disseminated disease as a baby or is in an immunocompromised state. There are also emerging theories that some of the pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndromes, PANS for short, may be herpes viral induced and may in select cases benefit from a course of acyclovir or valcyclovir. This is still work in understanding, but the real issue moving, what will be a real issue moving forward. That information comes from Suido et al. in 2015. Non-pharmaceutical interventions are weak and poorly studied. One candidate, the amino acid L-lysine, has been looked at for its antiviral properties. Fish, potatoes, yeast, yogurt are good sources of L-lysine. Some individuals have had a good response to this therapy when dosed at 3 grams per day with a similar 1-2 to two day reduction in, le in lesion time. That information comes from Mailu, M-A-I-L-O-O et al., 2017. I think of herpes virus, specifically the labialis type, as a problem of immune surveillance and viral suppression once contracted. If you are physically or mentally stressed, your innate and adaptive T helper type 1 cells are ineffective at controlling the persistent herpes virus. Thus, the bulk of our interventions should be focused on maintaining a robust immune system to suppress herpes viral replication and activity, which comes through maintaining a robust immune system surveillance. How should we do this? Most of the science on immune activation and function follows the general adage that it was good for the general cellular and human metabolism is great for immune surveillance and function. Therefore, let's look at the to-do. One, reduce the volume and change the quality of the ingested food sources. Sugar, flour, saturated fats consumed together in high volume are the major triggers of insulin resistance and metabolic derangement. Returning to a whole food, high fiber diet with no added sugars will profoundly change the inputs that cause insulin resistance and immune dysregulation. Saturated fat and fats in general, except for trans fats, are in and of themselves not dangerous in my interpretation of the data. In moderation and coupled with fiber and normal whole foods. The anti-inflammatory diet or a whole 30 style diet is the perfect place to start your new dietary journey. Number two. Secondly, 
Having periods of restriction from calories as a fast or a time-restricted feeding pattern will give the system time to heal by turning off mTOR1, or mechanistic or mammalian target of rapamycin, which is a master metabolic switch. Eating in an 18 to 6 pattern, which is 18 hours of fasting and 6 hours of eating, is ideal for individuals past 18 years of age and likely younger age as well. This means that you compress your meals into a six-hour window and you allow for long periods of caloric deprivation, pushing the metabolic system to shift into breakdown mode as opposed to storage mode. For younger children, I encourage eating only when they are hungry. Only present high-quality anti-inflammatory food types to eat and you are well on your way to health and childhood insulin resistance avoidance and therefore immune stability. Avoid, avoid, avoid sugar beverages as juice, soda, sweet tea, flavored milks, etc. Can't tell you how many kids we see in clinic who are struggling with weight gain, liver damage, insulin resistance, all based on these simple problems of excess refined carbohydrates. That all unfortunately leads over time to immune dysregulation, which we therefore see as chronic infections and problems. Number three, thirdly, Moderate exercise is a powerful tool to change metabolic and immune problems by directly increasing the utilization of glucose and increasing white blood cell activity. Move often, daily, and with purpose. Not much more to say here other than family-based activities are great for collective encouragement. Number four, learn to reduce chronic mental stress. Mental stress dramatically affects blood glucose levels, raising them due to the release of stress hormones from the adrenal gland. Stress also turns on inflammatory pathways, systematically worsening the insulin resistance issue as well as immune function. Five, what herbs and supplements can be used to augment this process? I look at number one of this under this subcategory five, or let's call it letter A, omega-3 fatty acids or omega-3 fats. They are primarily found in fish oils and other foods like flax seeds or krill oil. They are a major source of anti-inflammatory compounds called resolvents, protectins, and defensins. I encourage small oily fish consumption, including mackerel, salmon, sardines, and trout. High-quality fish oil supplements are also excellent. Subcategory B, polyphenol supplements and foods. Polyphenols are chemicals that are found in berries, green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, onions, cocoa, and other plants. They are very potent sources of anti-inflammatory compounds and directly work against metabolic and immune problems. So eat lots of those wonderful, high-color, vibrant, quality, uh, whole foods that come from Mother Nature. Subcategory C, curcumin, otherwise known as turmeric. It is a special herb all on its own. It is a very potent anti-inflammatory compound that blocks nuclear factor kappa B, which is a master inflammatory regulator. It also blocks the downstream inflammation that comes thereafter. This will be very useful to prevent the progression of the immune-mediated inflammation and dysfunction. Subcategory D, berberine. Berberine is another plant-based chemical that has been shown in quality studies to increase adenosine monophosphate kinase and glucose 4 transporter receptors, counteracting the bad effects of the standard American diet and also uh, laziness. It also can modulate the intestinal microbiome, shifting it toward a healthy immune status. The data on berberine is growing, and I am finding that I love berberine as a supplement. So read on if you have a 
desire. There are very good articles online. If you go to Google Scholar, put in Berberine Review articles, a bunch pop up in the last five years that are worth your time. Subcategory E, vitamins A and D and the mineral zinc are all necessary cofactors of enzymatic immune-based reactions. Using the sun as a 30-minute source of vitamin D daily is part one. Vitamin A can be obtained through the consumption of fish, orange, yellow, red, vegetables and fruits, eggs, liver, and broccoli. Zinc is often obtained through the consumption of meat, eggs, shellfish, pumpkin seeds, and legumes. Supplementation with provider dosing is also useful, but you need to be careful as zinc drives copper in the wrong direction, so you need to track levels. And I often encourage if you're taking any supplements at doses above the RDA, you track levels because it is not a good idea to go in the other direction too far. Okay, that's a wrap for herpes virus. I hope you enjoyed a little bit of a tour de force of what's going on with herpes labialis and how to prevent it. And uh, we're going to move on to section two. After listening to a recent podcast by Peter Atia, who you all know I love very much, an excellent podcaster, he was interviewing Dr. Sarah Halberg. I was struck with her candor and experiences related to her diagnosis of lung cancer and the realities of the healthcare equity that followed. She paints a very dark picture for those with less means and the chance to survive cancer in the United States medical system seems daunting. As a provider of care that tries very hard every day to see every child and patient as a human with a healthcare concern that needs a remedy, regardless of social status, creed, or race, it is hard to hear that people do not have access to the best quality care when they are suffering from such a horrific disease, or for that matter, any disease. In pediatrics in the state of North Carolina, we are blessed with a competent government-run Medicaid insurance model that allows us to treat most, if not all, children to the fullest extent necessary, at times even better than their insured brethren. It is beyond maddening to see a person suffering and then also be left without the help needed to heal and at least suffer the least. In the end, it comes down to advocacy and grit. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to go fight the system to get the care that I need uh, or I knew my patient needed or my family needed or any other patient in our practice. The current medical system prizes money over most anything else, and that is completely dysfunctional. We need to prize health above all else. We spend more money on healthcare than any other industrialized country in the world, and yet struggle to provide the necessary supports for many patients, especially in the adult sector. It is time for all of us to fight for transparent medical care, where you know what you are getting, paying, and that your provider and their team are fully invested in your health. Above all, be an advocate for your child, father, mother, sibling, or friend. Help them navigate the quagmire that is the American healthcare system and keep us, the providers of care, accountable to you for the best outcome. Because in the end, we are here for you, and that is really the key to all of this. Section three. This is a reprise article of Elimination, and this is the second one, uh, continued from two weeks ago. Now we're going to look at sweating. Sweating is another very important tool that the body uses to eliminate unwanted stuff. And in this case, the body primarily is eliminating heat and toxins via liquid sweat. When we exercise vigorously, or it is a hot day, or we find ourselves overeating, excuse me, overheating while fighting an infection, sweat will pour from our skin through glands and a, an endothermic reaction will occur. The water that is released carries heat away from the body it evaporates into the air, liberating the heat and thus cooling the body in return. 
In this sweated liquid are electrolytes and toxins. Primarily the sweat fluid has a natural release of small amounts of sodium and to a lesser extent potassium and calcium. Chemicals, heavy metals, and other toxins that are released through sweat provide a major relief for the liver, kidneys, and other cellular detox mechanisms. These organs can get a much needed rest from the constant work related to detoxification from the toxic world that we find ourselves in. It is clear that sweating is a necessary tool for human cellular protection through the removal of excess heat and toxic burdens. The act of sweating when hot also turns on a cassette of genes called heat shock proteins. They are associated with longevity in many, 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 many different studies and podcasts that I've listened to over the past decade. These proteins are actually produced in response to all kinds of stressors, making them a class of stress response proteins that are upregulated transcriptionally in most cells in the body. They have a primary function of helping to repair damaged proteins and cells by refolding them to functional shapes. This refolding event reestablishes the cell's function and is the primary reason it improves longevity. Bottom line, sweating is, sweating is an elimination event that the body needs routinely to perform at peak ability. Get out and exercise in the heat, go to a sauna, and generally stress your body for its growth. In the last section, there is a link in the newsletter to minestrone soup made easy. The minestrone type of soup is an Italian-based soup, to my knowledge, that is loaded with many minerals and vitamins that people really could use for robust cellular function. And, oh, by the way, it happens to be very tasty. Uh, go back to the website to click the link. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, folks, that ends our newsletter audio version today. This was the audio recording of volume 11, issue number 24 that was published on May 31st of 2021. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a fabulous day. And remember always keep learning, keep living and keep loving.